You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Before you sit, uh, we do have Redemption Hill kids this morning. And so they will be, once again, as they were started last week, they'll be focusing on prayer, which is great. So if you have a child ages two to four, we have a class for them and also uh, five to nine. And so our five to nine-year-olds will be learning about prayer. And so this is the question this morning. And then the answer will be from our confession of faith. With what attitude should we pray? And with me, prayer with thanksgiving is one part of worship and is required by all men by God. So it may be accepted is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to His will. Is to be made with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. Fantastic. Thank you. You may be seated. If it serves you parents, like I said, we have Redemption Hill kids this morning, so ages 2 to 4. And a class for five to nine. Thank you, Jen, Erica, and Aaron for serving our kids this morning. If, uh, kids, you're in service, we do have kids' sermon notes, if that serves you. It's on the table in the hallway along with some totes. Totes. If you got your Bible, you can just open it up to Matthew 9. We'll be parked there for the majority of the sermon, along with the book of Proverbs. So if you like flipping back and forth, Matthew 7, excuse me, and then the book of Proverbs. There is some unfinished business from 2022, and we need to finish our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's been a long, but I hope helpful journey. For several weeks and months, we have been Sitting, as it were, at the feet of Jesus, thinking, learning, and longing to apply the teachings of our Lord. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been immensely challenged as we've slowed down and just kind of just looked and pondered and wanting to receive all that God has for us in this magnificent sermon. And as I've said many times, and I'll repeat again today, if there's a a major theme that kind of runs through the entire sermon, it, it is this, is that God calls his people to live distinctly in this world. 
So from beginning to today, that is one of the major themes. God's preaching to a crowd, and he is saying, hey guys, this is what it looks like to follow me. And as we've seen, some of his teachings are good, but hard. Right? They're good, but hard. Over and over, and in different ways, God has been showing us how, what the shape of the Christian life looks like. So now we are in an airplane, and we are kind of approaching the Des Moines International Airport. Maybe we're circling a little bit, waiting to kind of land this plane that is the Sermon on the Mount. So after today, we'll just have one more sermon to kind of, kind of wrap up and button up the Sermon on the Mount and this sermon series. As for today, I will be combining, as you saw from what John read, we'll be combining two thoughts from Christ that are connected. And as a reminder, um, it is good from time to time to go slowly through chapters and books in the Bible. The genre tends to dictate the pace, but when it is allowed, we like to go slow and kind of turn over every rock. And there's been a lot here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. All right, let me pray, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, I just need to confess this morning that um, I need help. Uh, Lord, I'm going to strive to be faithful, to preach through your word, but I need help from the Spirit. So I confess my neediness this morning. And by the power of the Spirit, may your words go forth. I pray that this passage in front of us from Matthew 7 would impact our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We read in Holy Scripture that rock is a metaphor or analogy for God, right? If, you're, if you've been reading your Bible for more than five minutes, you run into that. In Deuteronomy 32, in what is called the Song of Moses, God is described as a rock. God is described as a rock, and it's described that way to invoke this immovable image. And throughout history, God's people, God has shown his people that he is immovable in a sense because he's been completely faithful. His faithfulness is, cannot move that. Picking up on the theme we read in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is, there it is, my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God. It's repeated there, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. The metaphor is carried forward in the New Testament. Perhaps the most famous example is an exchange between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. Jesus says to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter. It's like, as if Peter like, needed, his, needed a reminder of what his name is, right? But Jesus is actually making a point. <laughs> you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What you can't see in the English is a, is a wordplay by Jesus. The name Peter, if you don't know, means rock. 
Therefore, in the Greek, Matthew 16, 18 reads something like this. And I tell you, you are a rock, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. <laughs> now, I'm not going to get all Catholic on you on this. i got an argument against that, but... I want to make a point here. you got to see the major point. Rocks are a symbol of reliability, stability, and eternity. When you say, God is my rock, you indicate that God is the foundation of your life. When you say the church is built upon the rock, you suggest that God is the foundation of this church and all of his local churches. When you say the foundation of your life is built upon a rock, you are saying that God is the reason your life is secure. Like we sang blessed assurance this morning, and rightfully so. If God is your rock, and as we're going to see here in a moment, if you build your, your house upon the rock, you have every reason to hope and every reason to feel secure. Jesus summarizes his Sermon on the Mount, prodding you with a question that leaves you with a choice. Will you build your life upon the rock or sand? Right? Let me ask the question one more time because I want you to be thinking about this question throughout the remainder of the sermon. Will you build your life, your house, upon the rock or sand. Everyone here, adults and children, everyone here must be confronted by Christ with this question. If your instant reaction is, oh, I for sure want to build my life upon the rock, if that is your instinctive reaction, that's great, uh, but I want you to know what you signed up for. <laughs> if you're unsure about the status of your foundation, and what your life is built upon, your house is built upon, then today, Christ actually offers you an invitation. It is an invitation to pick up your home, kind of like when you see someone who um, takes their house off the foundation because they want to live in a, lo a different location, and you see that truck coming down the road, and you're just like, how did that house get on the truck and they move it? How the it's kind of like that, though, right? If you know you're, you have a bad foundation, let's get the house off the ground and let's move it. Or maybe we got to burn down the house and start over. I trust the Holy Spirit will guide you to whatever conclusion you need to go to. Right. The final illustration from Jesus is not the first time that we are presented with a choice. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus confronts us with choices in several different ways. Through several examples, Jesus says, you can go down this path or you can go down that path. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, there are two gates, right? You can only enter one of the gates. Entering through the narrow gate is hard, Jesus says, but it's good. Entering through the wide gate is easy, right? A lot of people can get through the wide gate, but you know what? That gate leads to destruction. You have a choice. In verses 15 and 20 of Matthew 7, Jesus speaks about good and bad trees. You might remember that. 
These trees are a metaphor for false prophets and perhaps true prophets. The false prophets are like wolves that have gotten into the sheep pen. The implicit question that Jesus asks us is, what kind of prophet are you listening to? Are you aware? Again, two choices. Are you engaging false prophets or teachers or true prophets, true teachers? Bad trees, good trees. And then in verses 21 to 23 of Matthew 7, Jesus rocks the ears of his listeners when he says that not everyone who professes Christ is saved by Christ. Look at verses 21 and 23 because these verses will set up the final binary choice given to us by Christ. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Like we just paused right there for a moment and just read that sentence. We'd be like, whew, where is he going? I mean, I just read Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Huh. Let's continue. But those, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hold on to that. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? Look at all that I have done, God. Kind of hearing something there. Look what I've done. Look at the sermon I preached. Wasn't it really good, God? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. In my opinion, these words seem shocking, right? It's like, whoa. You can have a guy saying the right words, casting out demons, and doing mighty works, but his foundation is trash. The house may look great. It might look like the most expensive, tricked-out house in the neighborhood. A man who can eloquently proclaim, didn't even say that word right, eloquently proclaim words, can build a big house. But in reality, the house blows over with the slightest wind. When you drill down to the most basic categories, there are two types of people in the world. Two. The first type, it's touched by the grace of the gospel. right? Mouth, heart, and actions. Touched by grace. right? And then there's everyone else, including the pretenders. Like, in a culture where we tend to categorize everyone, at the end of the day, there are two types of people. As Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, Jesus presses the issue of what is professed and done because God does not want us to fall into self-deception. A person can believe themselves into being something they are not. Here's a very significant caveat 
for interpreting and applying verses 21 to 23. You should not read verses 21 to 23 and question your salvation. That's not what Christ is getting at here. That is not the point Jesus is making to genuine followers. Jesus does want you, once again, to be honest with what is going on in your heart. Just because you play the Christian song and you do the Christian dance does not mean you are a Christian. Only those who are elected, called, regenerated, converted, justified, and adopted proclaim Lord, Lord, and truly mean it. That kind of person is a child of God. They've gone from being a child of wrath to being a son or daughter. The question is, what a person believes and does to evidence they are followers of Jesus Christ, which is the point Jesus makes using the metaphor of what you're building your house upon, the rock or the sand. Now let's look at some of the details of this illustration given to us by Christ. First, each, notice each man hears the words of Christ. As Jesus comes to the end of this sermon, he wants to make sure you're listening. We read in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. And then drop down to verse 26. It's repeated. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. The wise and the fool have heard the words of Christ. The question is, what will you do with the words of Christ? As I've grown older, I've come to realize that when I'm given information, I am all of a sudden responsible for that information. There's times where like, I don't want to know, because <laughs> I'm like, all of a sudden I'm responsible for it. But it's true, right? For example, if you come to me and say, hey, Jack and Jill got engaged. Uh, I'm responsible for that information because I, I probably need to go home and tell my wife that Jack and Jill got engaged, right? And then she wants all the details, and I don't know half the details, so I have to go find out for someone else and ask, what are the details? But I'm responsible for that information. Conversely, if something horrible would happen, say, you know, this happened to Sally. I'm responsible for that information. I have to act upon it. Jesus says in verse 24 and 26 that you have heard him preach. You were listening. You were there. Jesus says, I saw you there. You have the Sermon on the Mount in front of you. It's in our Bibles. The information's right here. Now, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, we have spent 34, I think, 34 sermons on 34 different Sundays reading the words of Christ and hearing the words of Christ. Now, what are you going to do with the details? What are you going to do with that information? Like, no, no one here walks away from church not accountable to what Christ has said. Not challenged to be like, i got to do something with this. You've heard. You have the information. I mean, let's get really practical for a moment. Let's, let's go back in time a little bit. In Matthew 5, when we, when we were in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, especially men, not to lust after another woman in their heart. Certainly not with actions, but he's, he's really drilling down into a man's heart. Do not lust after another woman who is not your wife. We, we talked about that. 
in God's providence, I didn't plan this, in God's providence, that landed on Father's Day. I'll never forget it. I remember sitting there, I preached and being like, Happy Father's Day. Now I got to talk to you fellows about what Jesus says about lust in your heart. So here's the question. I preached the sermon. You have it in front of you. Fellas, in particular, what have you done with that information? Right? How have you protected your heart? Here's another example that applies to everyone. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to pray. And he tells us what to pray. Jesus literally says, pray like this. So since that sermon, and he didn't need a sermon to hear it, because we got it again right here. What have you done with your prayer life? How has that shaped your prayer life? How have you acted upon the information given to you from Christ? Information is intended to cultivate transformation. What you do with the information will determine the, kind of the shape of your Christian life. At this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we should not be shocked by what Jesus is saying to us. Since Matthew 5, 3, and the first beatitude, God wants your life to take on the shape of Christ. When your life looks like Christ, you will look different in this world. You are distinct. And as you take the shape of Christ, you are entrusted with wisdom. You are wise. That's verse 24. So what is wisdom? What does it mean to be a wise person? A biblical definition of wisdom begins with fearing and trusting in God. The book of Proverbs is just a great place. If you want to, know, if you want to learn about wisdom, the book of Proverbs is the, is the right place to go. Here's what we read. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The quest for wisdom begins with fearing God. A reverential, rightly placed fear of a holy God. That's where we begin to understand what it means to be a wise person. Knowledge and wisdom are actually closely tied together in the book of Proverbs. Knowledge tends to focus on correctly understanding the world, the self, and loving God. Wisdom is the acquired skill of applying knowledge, right? Get information. Again, what do I do with that? What do I do with the information? What do I do with knowledge? I've got to apply it. So in light of what you know, how will you live? In light of the information you have, what will you do? We can see how Proverbs 1.7 connects with Jesus' illustration in Matthew 7. Here's another proverb, proverb that helps bring some definition about what it means to be wise. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Many of you know this verse. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. We don't see the words wise or wisdom in this proverb, but we see what it looks like. The wise will govern themselves by what the Lord declares and will not set their own finite, often mistaken understanding against God. A wise person does not set his will against the will of God. That's what we see in Matthew 7. The one who follows the will of God is the one who knows God. I mean, how often do we set our will against God's will? 
I know I'm tempted to it all the time. I do. I, I know my sinful heart. I'm tempted to set my will against the will of God. And now here's perhaps one of the most helpful passages about wisdom in the Bible. From James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It gives you a contrast here. Here's what wisdom doesn't look like. This is what it looks like to set your will against God, and you're not wise, you're a fool. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be, to be, and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. Ah, wisdom is coming from somewhere, right? This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and he says even demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder. God is a God of order. There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In James 3, along with what we read in the Sermon on the Mount, wisdom comes from God. And the fruit of wisdom is living this godly life. And in James, we see several fruits of the Spirit come up. So when Jesus says in verse 24, all who hear and does what I have said is wise, we see there is information and then implementation. For a moment, let's consider the foolish path, right? Once again, Jesus is not inventing a new word or a new idea. He has the book of Proverbs, perhaps, on the mind. It is certainly his, a reference point. Here's Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinions. I think it's safe to say we live in a culture where opinions abound. I'll be the first to admit I have opinions. Just pick the topic. <laughs> I have an opinion. But if we step back for a moment, there's a difference between knowing what is true and spouting off an idea that is disconnected from the truth. I don't, know, I don't know why I did this, but I was writing this portion. I paused and I decided to go on Twitter. <laughs> oh, man. What a cesspool of opinions. It took me about 30 seconds to realize there are so many things being said in a limited amount of space that is so disconnected from truth. Had to get off because I was like, oh, I'm just like, it was bothering my own heart, right? I clearly followed the wrong people. Let's circle back to Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool despise, despises wisdom that is saturated with the truth of God and instruction. What has the Sermon on the Mount been all about? Truth and instruction. The fool despises this teaching from Christ. For a moment, imagine you were listening to Jesus as he delivered this sermon, right? Just transport back to the 3280. You were there sitting in the crowd. You heard the same teaching as everyone else in the crowd. 
and you with everyone else have a choice to make. You can seek to be wise or head down the path of foolishness. Whether it is an active choice or a passive choice, you make the choice. I want you to notice that the conditions are the same for the wise and the fool. This line is said twice in our passage. And the rain fell and the floods came. That word floods basically means river. The river came. I grew up on the Mississippi River, right? Dubuque, Iowa. And you don't want to be in the path of when that mighty river is coming your way. And the winds blew and beat on that house. There's some debate. This is where it's a little cryptic here. There's some debate about what the storm represents. Do the rain, flood, and wind represent a person's current circumstances in life, right? Or does this storm have like an eschatological focus, like when Jesus returns? Do the rain and flood and winds represent God's future judgment? Right? Regardless, your foundation is determinative if your house can withstand the flood, the rain, and the winds. We can draw some conclusions, but we need to be careful not to press the interpretation too far. First, I think it is true that life is messy. Suffering exists for God's people and really for all people. Back to Proverbs for a moment. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous have an everlasting foundation. It's Proverbs 10, 25. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that speak to the toil of our life. Therefore, when the storms of life hit, your foundation will determine how you stand up to the storm. So yeah, we can read this passage and realize the choices I make or do not make will shape my life, either away from Christ or toward Christ. Therefore, my choices will result in a house that falls down or withstands the storm. Second, it is also true that God will judge the living and the dead. That's true. When Jesus returns to complete his plan of redemption and restoration, judgment will accompany redemption and restoration. And so we can go back to the question at hand. Are you building your life upon the rock or sand? Allow the great uh, 17th century reformer Martin Luther to prod you a bit. He said, said this, and I was helped. With this analogy, Jesus intends to give us a faithful warning to be careful that we hold tight to his teaching and do not let go of Christ in our hearts as our only sure foundation and the cornerstone of our salvation and blessedness as St. Peter and St. Paul call on the basis of Isaiah 28.16. Here's what's really important. If we stand grounded and built on that, we shall remain impregnable. We can let the world and the devil and all the false teachers and schematic spirits send rain and hail and slush and a storm and rage with us, every kind of danger and trouble. Luther is saying, all that can come, but if my foundation is, is Christ, I will not be moved. Nothing can topple your house. Nothing. Nothing. 
challenge that we run into as humans, and that's sinful human beings, is that we're so tempted to build the foundation for ourselves. Like, we think we know what tools to use. We think we know what kind of material that needs to be laid. I mean, that's our impulse. And at the end of the day, when the floods came, your house will be swept away down the Mississippi. But if your foundation is Christ, you will stand. You will stand. I also make mention, not only Christ, but the teachings of Christ, because the teachings of Christ are like rebar that reinforce that foundation of yours. The picture of building a house on sand or a rock is meant to be obvious, right? Now, I do not know how you technically build a house on a giant piece of rock, but I do know that it is unlikely the rock will move. Conversely, building a house on the beach of the ocean seems a little more risky to me. I'm sure an engineer here could figure that out, right? But what I do know is that when those waters come in, a lot of sand goes away with it. And that is an unstable foundation. So in this illustration, Jesus is offering us a binary choice. There is no third option. It is true that when you're faced with some decisions, there could be more than two choices. For example, if you paint your house, you have, if you want to paint your house, you have lots of options. But Jesus only gives us two choices. And the binary nature of these choices is consistent throughout the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew 7. So here's the question I want to ask about this pattern. Why does Jesus only give us two choices? Why aren't there three or four choices? I think I have an answer consistent with Holy Scripture. Following Christ is a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing. I'm not a poker player. I've played it a long time ago with a bunch of friends in high school. But I know enough to know this. Are you putting all your chips into the middle of the table or are you even holding a few back? Are you going all in for Christ or are you holding something back? It's all or nothing. On Friday, I was working on this sermon at a cafe and the guy noticed kind of the books on my table. We struck up a conversation about Christianity. Uh, he's a devout Catholic, and I am Protestant. And we discussed similarities between um, our respective faiths. It was a great conversation. I hope to get coffee with this guy in the near future. But at one point in the discussion, he asked me why I was Protestant. Right? Why did I leave Catholicism? That was his real question. Like, why'd you leave? What happened? You can tell me. And why are you Protestant? <laughs> I told him that at some point, as the Spirit regenerated my heart, I realized that following God was this zero-sum game. It was all or nothing. I was not going to approach the Christian faith half-heartedly. Now, there are many other reasons why I left the Catholic Church, but I'll never forget being confronted by God. Sean, what are you going to do? Listen, I'm, I'm Reformed. I believe that God only saves. I offer nothing to that. But you and I also know 
that we have a will to choose. What foundation are you laying as you make choices? A temptation that exists within American Christianity is to create a third option. We want the gate to be a little wider, right? We will listen to that teacher on YouTube who softens the unpopular truths of the Bible. We create a foundation that is this mixture of rock and sand. But Jesus does not give us a third option. As I further consider the illustration from our Lord, I tend to think about the building of a house as this lifelong journey. As long as the foundation is upon, is upon the rock, there are times when the building process happens quickly, and then there's times where you realize that, hey, I might, might want to repaint the living room. You didn't like that shade of off-white. <laughs> Our Lord can handle the messiness of your life, provided you are building upon the right foundation, Him. God gives you the grace and mercy to navigate your life as you build upon Christ. At men's group last week, I, I solicited feedback from my previous sermon last Sunday. And one of the fellows provided me with this observation. Really grateful for it. It's a great sermon. Now what? What do I do with everything you said? It was a great observation, and I now want to answer the question from what we've learned from Matthew 7, specifically verses 24 to 27. Now what? Now what? What does it practically look like to build your house on the rock who is Jesus Christ? I'm eager to answer this question because rain, floods, and wind will come. We live in Iowa. The wind's certainly going to come, right? Just step out for a moment and wait a second. But truthfully, right, in life, the rain, the floods, and the wind come. And they, sometimes they come often. And it's hard. So now what? Some observations for you. First, as I've said, we have heard from God. But now Christ asks us to act upon what we've heard. Therefore, building a house on the rock means taking the Sermon on the Mount to heart. We have to begin there. We have to say yes and amen to what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And a totality of Scripture, for sure, but focusing on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Take to heart the Beatitudes. That's how we let out this sermon series. Take to heart what it means to love your enemies. That's a hard one. Take to heart the Lord's Prayer. Take the more arduous road that leads to the narrow gate. The Christian life consists of not just a bunch of theological beliefs, and truly we love theology here, right? Doesn't take long to figure that out. But the Christian life is also a transformed life. A transformed life. So we take to heart what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. Second, there are practical steps you can take to build your house on the rock. I have found in life that you are who you hang with. I tell it to my kids all the time, right? 
Latch on to people who have the same goals. Hang out with people who want to build their house with Christ as the foundation. Hopefully, the local church is a primary place where you find these relationships. Hopefully, everyone who's a member of Redemptional Church says yes and amen. We, I personally need to build my, this foundation needs to be Jesus. And actually, I don't build a thing. I'm doing the house. He is the foundation. And I want to hang out with people who want to do the same. I think that's really important. Third, do not neglect the ordinary, which is actually extraordinary. Do not neglect Christian disciplines like prayer and Bible reading. That seems really basic, but yeah, it is. I say it's ordinary in the sense that that seems obvious, but it's extraordinary. You're encountering the living God. When you're on your knees praying, when you open up and you read what God has spoken and continues to speak, it seems so ordinary, but it's extraordinary. Knowing and embodying the truth requires engaging the truth. I know, again, this is an obvious application point, but it actually, this one cannot be overstated at all. You will, for example, you will not know anything about aerodynamics if you've never read a book about aerodynamics or you've gone to the conference about aerodynamics or you talk to that professional who knows everything about aerodynamics. The same is true when you build a house on the rock. You need to know, truly know, the foundation that you're building upon. Last but not least, I would direct you to the Beatitudes. As we come to the end of Matthew 7, and you ask, Pastor Sean, now what? I would take you back to Matthew 5, verse 3. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the faint of heart. It is for those who seek to live out the Beatitudes as Christ embodied and lived out each Beatitude. If you want to know what it takes to build your house upon Christ, begin here. I just wanted to review it as we come to an end of this sermon series. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Allowing these pre precious truths to 
encounter and ground you will help you build a house on the right foundation. The meek, those who hunger, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted. We have a sermon for each beatitude and for good reason. The beatitudes, in a sense, along with the Ten Commandments, are the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. By God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit, all these characteristics are yours because you are in Christ, Christian. These characteristics, which are fully seen in Christ, are a great place for building a house. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.